Now on Netflix, inspired by the unbelievable true story of a fake hitman, comes the new movie, Hitman, from Academy Award nominee Richard Linklater. At 96% certified fresh on Rotten Tomatoes, critics are calling Hitman a smart, sexy crime thriller with surprises at every turn. Starring Glenn Powell and Adria Arjona, Hitman. Now playing on Netflix and in select theaters. Rated R. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the 32nd episode of Crime Over Wine, the only podcast with head-scratching true crime stories that are just better over a bottle of wine. I'm your host, Liam Collins, and this week, my guest co-host is a true crime lover from Arkansas and the host of her own true crime podcast, too. My guest co-host this week is Danica Yates. Hello, Danica. Hello, Liam. Thank you so much for having me on. I'm really excited about today's episode. Oh, I am so excited. We've been talking... Danica, it feels like we've been talking for so long about this case, and so I'm so excited to finally be able to break it down for us. Danica is the host of Murder and Mimosas, the true crime podcast that she hosts with her mom, Shannon. They drop episodes every single Saturday. So I need to know, because mom, mom-daughter duo kind of deal, I need to know how this came about. You know, I'm assuming that you're the one who, who kind of provoked this idea, but I need to know, like, the beginning to end, how, did. The, how did all this happen? So I actually originally started a true crime book club here in Little Rock, and we meet for brunch once a month oh fun so that's where mimosas came in um and she (laughs) was in it with me so we decided that you know outside of just reading where there's still all these other true crime cases that we're interested in and we want to learn about and what we were about so we decided well let's go ahead and just bring our true crime and our mimosas together again and we'll do it in podcast form well there you go awesome i love that and a good little mother-daughter bonding time too i'm sure huh yes it is and we made it where our episodes <laughs> drop about brunch time every saturday so you know the listeners can also have a mimosa. oh well there you go I, well you know i love a good mimosa so like i'm all aboard that for sure so um <laughs> you know t- speaking of you know like champagne like wine kind of like let's just like make that like a little transition over so this week we are drinking toasted head chardonnay it has a unique richness and complexity complemented by peaches and pineapple and finishes with notes of toasted coconut and butterscotch. So all different kinds of flavors that I've never even heard of in a wine before. And so this like, and the the label is totally different too. It's like a bear, like breathing fire. And so I was like, you know what, let's just go for it. Like, you know, I'm, you know, all about stretching our horizons on this podcast. And so I'm ready for it. Finding this one in the store was really easy because there's not many with bears and there's none (laughs) of bears breathing fire except for I'm sure. I'm, I'm sure you went right up to the front to the to the guy at the front was just like, hey, you know, like, do you have a like a wine with a bear breathing fire? And he was like, I got no more. Uh, I got you. So I do need to know, Danica, what kind of wine do you typically go for? Um, I like ones that are a little sweeter. Okay. Um, but I'm not super 
picky. I'm always willing to try something new. So I don't have like one okay. go-to. It's like all about my mood, you know? So Okay, cool. Well, I think I think then you would oh like love that sound. Um I think then you would probably like this one up, I'm gonna guess. Um, because if you like sweeter wines. Yeah, I think so. It always sounds like tropical. You got pineapples and coconut. Oh yeah. Yeah. So. Yeah, no, for sure. Yeah, and I, you know, I love trying new kinds of wines, especially different, especially, like, I love pineapples, like, that's my new, like, like summer thing, like, I'm trying to, like, eat more fruits and stuff, and so pineapples um, are definitely on my list, and so, you know, maybe I'll just, like, you know, I have I didn't have my pineapples yet today, so maybe I'll just, like, drink my pineapples instead, like, who cares, right? So, Same thing, really. Basically, yeah, right, exactly. You know what, like, like, what is wine made out of? Grapes. And so, therefore, this is a fruit smoothie, and that's a, that's a whole I'll die on. <laughs> <laughs> Cheers to you, Danica. Thanks Cheers. so much for coming on. Oh, it smells so good. It does smell really good. Very light flavors. Yeah, it's not nothing like really comes out super strong to me. Like Mm-mm. I definitely taste the pineapple, but like not super strong, like you said. Yeah, I this is not what I was expecting at all, but I kind of like it. It's really good. Yeah, toasted coconuts. I definitely get some toasted coconuts okay. in the back. I get why. The bear is breathing fire because I do kind of feel like a little, little tingliness, a little, little, little toast going on in the back of my mouth. Um, so I, I'm liking this one. I really like, I don't typically go for Chardonnays because I'm not an oaky person. I'm not like a buttery person for wines. It's not my deal, but I kind of, I am kind of into this one. No, it's still got the buttery to it, but it's not like mm-hmm. nothing. It is like overpowering anything else. No, not at all. I definitely, like I said, I definitely get coconut. I definitely get pineapple. I'm struggling to taste the peaches. I do get a little, like I got buttery. I don't really get butterscotch necessarily. Yeah. I think a butterscotch almost being really, really sweet and I don't get a whole lot of that. It smells more like peaches. Yeah. You know what? You're right about that. The the it, You get a peach a lot more if you sniff it. That's so true. Yeah. I'm into this one. And listen, like all of my like, like I'm trying to expand my horizons on this podcast. I'm trying to try new things, try new wines. And so this is not something that I would typically have gone for in the store, right? Like, I like, you know, more of an elegant bottle. Like, I like a, you know, a darker red. Um, So this is not something I would have gone for. And so that's why I was like, you know what? Let's just, like, go for it. Like, let's just, like, do it. And so this is your sign if you guys are trying to, you know, try something new. You know, maybe start with your wine first and just, like, see. You know, it, the, worst, the worst thing that can happen is you take a little sip and then you pass it along to somebody else who would actually like it right like like what what are you harming so so there you go this is your sign try something new because liam tried something new and liam tried liam liked it so (laughs) yes and erica liked it and i would not have i'd been like in the store picking it out on my own i would have saw a bear Mm. breathing fire i'm like "Mm." I don't think that's the one mm, for me. Yeah, that's not my that's not my vibe today. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> no, we're on the same page. We're definitely on the same page. So good. Yeah, it is good. It is good. Yeah. So there you go. So you know, Danica, like we were talking about. So we have been dissecting this case for a very, very, very long time. I know every single one of our true crime, like our hardcore, like die, like diehard true crime lovers on both of our podcasts are going to know this case like front to start. Um, but hopefully, we'll bring something a little bit new, right? Um, but but for those for those of you who are you know casual you know true crime listeners and are you know you know pr- you know don't recognize this case hold on because it is absolutely bumpy from beginning to end so what do you say we dive deep into this one Danica I'm ready to go let's go so Danica this week I am taking you north of the border for the very first time on this podcast I am going to tell you about a disturbing investigation that involved dozens of some of Vancouver's most vulnerable 
vulnerable women going missing from the city over the time span of nearly 20 years. This week, I am going to tell you the stories of Kara Ellis and Andrea Borhaven and the rest of Vancouver's missing women. Lori Ann Ellis and the rest of her family were all used to hearing from 26-year-old Kara, Lori Ann's sister-in-law, on big occasions. She would call back on birthdays or holidays or talk about big news in the family. That was pretty much the extent of Kara's communication back home since she moved to Vancouver and really got involved with the wrong crowd. Kara had gotten involved in drugs and turned to sex work to support that habit. So suddenly, the calls home about the big days also included calls requesting help when she was arrested, which most of the family was always happy to provide, but maybe just through some gritted teeth. But in early 1997, that regular communication suddenly stopped, and it seemed as though, from what I'm gathering from her family, the ending of communication wasn't all that uncommon. She was a little more wishy-washy than they would have liked. She would get arrested or get wrapped up with the wrong person, or maybe get upset with her family's disdain over her lifestyle and distance herself for a while until she ended up coming back around. But this time was different. Kara's cutoff of communication lasted a month, and then two months, and then six months, and then it was more than a year since anyone had heard from Kara. Oh, wow. I can't imagine being a family member, like her family members, and all of a sudden she stops talking, and you kind of expect her to come back, and I just get like a get to pit in my yeah. stomach thinking about it. Yeah, and you know, and, and again, like, this is like the first little, like, taste of, like, kind of like the themes, right, that we're going to be talking about throughout this episode, um, because, you know, the problem, right, uh, you know, among the people in this community is that, you know, they, you know, it's very transient, right? You, like, you, you know, you know, maybe you're, you know, wrapped up with with this person and, you know, you're happy, you're okay for, like, you know, for, for a while and everything's okay, you don't really need to reach out to family for whatever reason, and then all of a sudden you do, right? So it's, it's you know, not hearing from from someone from that you know, from that community for a prolonged period of time is normal. Whereas like, you know, you or I, right, I would imagine, you know, I call my mom like basically every other day. And so, you know, her not hearing from me for, for a week is cause for concern, um, you know, but like, you know, not hearing from Kara for a month, two months, six months, you know, maybe a little bit more normal. Right. So that causes problems here. Yeah. And this is also for social media too, because I was thinking my grandmother texted me the other day. And was mm, like, Are so you okay? True. And I was like, yeah, I'm good. And she was I haven't seen you post anything on Facebook lately. Just checking. I was like, mm. okay. If you ever go missing, your grandma's going to come in handy, huh? <laughs> <laughs> so there you go. She's got your eye. She's got her eye on you. You know, well, the family had gotten really concerned and worried that something really bad had happened to Kara. Her sister-in-law, Lori Ann, decided that she was going to spend one of her long holiday weekends in Vancouver for the summer of 1998, searching the streets of Vancouver, looking for Kara, and trying to find out what had happened to her, to give the rest of her family some closure or at least some direction. After she has no luck, she decides that she is going to get police involved. She reports Kara missing in August of 1998. Oh, and this is what a year after basically they had stopped hearing from her. It's just heartbreaking. Yeah, that is. And yeah, so she, so she, again, just to recap, like, so so the, anyone, you know, people last reported hearing from her in January of 1997. Um, and so, and then, you know, August of 1998. So it's a year and seven months um, that, that, you know, before she, the, someone finally 
um, you know, filed a report. But again, like, you know, going back to like, so, so before she even files the report, she's going down there and like looking for her herself. And so like, like again, so, it, you know, I think the initial instinct isn't necessarily, oh, she's missing, you know, let's get police involved, whatever. Like, you know, cause again, like if, uh, if someone in my circle, you know, steps out of their routine, like I'm calling the cops, but like, yeah. this is, you know, very, it's, it's, it's just, it's stepping into a different world that I'm sure a lot of us are not familiar with at all. Yeah. And I'm thinking her family being familiar with her drug use. I, I doubt that she is super aware of it's been X amount of days if she's gone on mm-hmm. Twitter, you know, so I'm sure for them, right. she probably doesn't even think it's been that long or isn't aware that it's been as long as it has been. Um, so I'm sure mm-hmm. family's a little freaking out, but just assuming yeah. or at least hoping that they'll go out and she'll be on the street and they'll find her and it's going to be okay. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, too, I, I, cause the, what you said struck something in me too, of like, you know, like, like the people that care, I'm sure, um, are hanging out, is hanging out with, um, you know, you know, I'm sure are not communicating back with the family. And so, you know, I say January 1997, like that's the last time that anyone said, like, yes, this is when we heard from Kara, but like maybe there was somebody who just never stepped up and said anything, you know, or, you know, was, you know, maybe didn't even know that they were talking to Kara. Maybe they thought they were talking to somebody else, you know, cause a lot of these women use, you know, totally different names, you know, when they're participating in sex work. Um, and so it's it's just complicated, right? Like, again, we say all this, we sum it all up just to say it's just a very complicated situation that we're talking about here. Yes. Yeah. Well, she doesn't immediately see that police are taking her report very seriously. I mean, we are talking about a sex worker, possibly a drug addict. Lori Ann can just tell that her sister-in-law is not going to be high on their missing person's priority list. Police even say that it was likely that Kara went on some kind of vacation, despite making a fixed income on welfare of just $100 a month, which, again, like, the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard in my entire life. Like, like this kind of person is not spending money on vacation but whatever right and you would think if she's going on vacation she's telling someone it's been a year and seven right months where mm-hmm. did she go on vacation for a year and seven months for a hundred dollar a month because i would like to go for a hundred dollars <laughs> yeah true <laughs> me too uh well hey we'll split that cost how about that danica because i'll be that i'll be there in a second but yeah i mean but again like you know like i think that just just like you know goes to like like i feel like i get these these i read about this all the time in these kind of cases where it's like um where it's like somebody reports like for example like the tammy zawicki case um we did um episode 16 of this podcast um that was uh, you know and like the 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 you know rush to judgment there was that oh tammy must have went off with a boyfriend when like she didn't even have a freaking boyfriend right and so i don't really i never understood understand why like you know they they offer these kinds of you know assumptions like stop assuming things just go look into it like it's not your job to assume things you don't know this person like they know her way more than you do just go investigate it yes and the fact that it still happens today especially with those Mm -hmm. sex workers or maybe drug addicts that they're just kind of like well you know, it's really not yeah. to do. Like, the fact that it's still happening yeah. is what's so frustrating. Like, yeah. like, they haven't learned. Yeah, and, like, too, like, it just, like, like to, like, to be fair to them, like, right, like, I'm sure that these kinds of situations happen all the time, right? Like, this is a very, you know, again, not to, like, stigmatize at all, but this is a very unreliable community, right? Because, because of what we we're talking about before about, you know, the, the moving around constantly about, you know, reporting at, you know, various instances, you know, in their lives, right? Like, like, again, like, we were talking about, like, I call my mom every week, like, this is not the type of person who is checking in on, on a regular basis, they are checking 
checking in whenever they can, whenever they need something. And so, like, this is, you know, like, I'm sure from their perspective, like, this happens all the time. Um, And so I'm sure there is, like, this, you know, rush to, it's not a big deal, right? And, like, also, too, like, in Vancouver specifically, like, again, we're going to get to this much later on, but, like, this is happening pretty regularly at this point. And so, like, like, you know, at this point, they probably just say, oh, another one, you know, so... I don't know, but, um, you know, and so this was really the height in Vancouver of a lot of indifference towards sex workers around town and the type of activity that they brought to neighborhoods in the city, specifically Vancouver's downtown east side, which became known as the hub for sex work and drug activity all throughout Vancouver and really actually all throughout Canada. But Lori Ann had no idea just how strong that indifference was at this time or just how not alone she truly was here. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night, ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. In March 1997, friends of another sex worker were realizing that their loved one's contact had faded too. Andrea Borhaven was born in Armstrong, British Columbia, but moved out of her family's home into Vancouver when she was just 16. That's when she became heavily involved in drugs and in sex work. Before that, she was a really troubled kid. She was born the youngest of seven half-siblings to common-law parents who broke up shortly after Andrea was born. After that, she was tossed around a lot between both of her parents and was often getting into trouble and was even diagnosed with ADHD as a kid. That all continued until she was 16 when she dropped out of school and moved to Vancouver. When was she actually reported missing? Well, friends didn't report her missing until almost two years after anyone remembered seeing her. It was 1999 when someone finally called police about Andrea, and it's not really clear, like, how that came about, actually. I have to imagine, you know, maybe a group of people were used to not seeing her for stretches of time, again, kind of what we were talking about, and just maybe no one connected the dots that no one had seen her for all that time. That makes sense. They're probably at that point compared notes like, oh, I have haven't seen her since X, and then you realize that all of these people haven't seen her in that long. Yeah. And, like, putting myself in in their shoes, too, like, again, it would be, like, like, you know, hey, like, I haven't really, like, talked to, you know, to, you know, Danica in a couple of, you know, a couple months, like, have anyone seen her? You know, and, like, and then all of a sudden, you're just like, wow, nobody's seen her in, like, two years, so you know, problem. You know, it also, though, you know, the the moment that they actually, you know, reported her, Andrea missing also could have had something to do with this, though, too. Right in the middle of all of this, police began to piece together a really bad situation for Vancouver's downtown east side. But before I get there, just let me tell you a little bit more about this area and paint the picture more for you all. As I said, this neighborhood of town is the heart of Vancouver's drug scene. It's the poorest neighborhood in all 
all of British Columbia and all of Canada, according to the Crime Library. It's littered with rundown hotels, pawn shops, garbage, used condoms, and needles. The neighborhood averaged an overdose a day at the time and reported the highest rate of HIV infections in all of North America. One in four people who lived there were HIV positive. The city was really run by a group called the Hells Angels, an international outlaw motorcycle club with an estimated membership of about 6,000. Many countries consider it an organized crime syndicate, and Lori Ann, again, Kara's um, sister-in-law, even tells police that she knows that Kara's boyfriend was a known member of this motorcycle gang. In 1995, a survey of sex workers in the neighborhood revealed that 73% of working girls entered the sex trade as children, some as young as just 11 years old. Oh, my heart. As a mom, as a teacher, to even imagine 11-year-olds out on the street as sex workers Uh, is heartbreaking. Yeah. And devastating. And, like, trigger warnings, again, to, like, all the moms out here, if what I'm about to say, because, like, I didn't want to write this, but, like, since we're talking about it, I'll go there. So there's, like, a strip on this road, um, you know, that where, you know, the sex workers hang out um, called the Kitty Walk. Um, because that's those are where you can pick up children. So I can lovely place. So yeah, you know. And the interest in this neighborhood was really piqued by an alarming trend that really started to pick up steam by the mid 1990s. It was suddenly realized that they had a lot of missing women who were known sex workers in Vancouver's downtown east side, specifically this 10 square block stretch known as the Low Track, a neighborhood nicknamed for it being framed by dark alleyways, and abandoned homes. Some estimates put the number of sex workers who worked this neighborhood at the time to as many as 500 and possibly more. More than two dozen women who were reported missing from the area over a 14-year period, and it went back all the way to 1983. Rebecca Guno was 23 when anyone had last seen her, and she was reported missing just three days later. The trends of women who seemed to vanish into the night fluctuated over the next few years, a few in rapid succession over the span of a couple of months, and then nothing for a year or two, and then a few more women all at once. But the summer of 1997 appeared to be the most active year for women who were reported missing. Three women were reported missing in August of that year alone, and at least two more were reported missing for that entire summer. But because of the length of time that we're talking about, that it took friends and family to report their loved ones missing that didn't, you know, really tip police off until the following year when they start piecing together the full picture of what kind of horrible situation police had on their hands in Vancouver. Suddenly, they had at least 40 different people who had disappeared from Vancouver's downtown east side. You know, there is a part of me that's very fitted with how like the police handled things, but also putting myself in their shoes, it does have to be hard to figure out like, oh, okay, you haven't seen her since. Yeah. Sometime last year, talk person. Sometime last mm-hmm. year, so there's this space at some point where she's went missing, but we don't know when exactly. Sure, and that's happening with multiple different women. So I am sure for the police that has to be really hard, really frustrating, trying to piece together this timeline. So I do feel for them in that, though I do think that they had started investigating instead of pushing some of these to the side. They would have noticed sooner. Um, but I do think it's yeah. probably very difficult 
in what they were given. Yeah. And like, so, so there is like a piece, you know, that, and we're going to like touch on this much later on, but there's like a piece where Lori Ann, you know, much later, like, you know, almost 10 years later, you know, goes to police and, you know, is talking to them about her, about her sister-in-law and stuff. Um, and they, and she realizes that, um, that, you know, the reason that, you know, that, you know, the, the investigation hadn't really kicked in for Kara, um, is because the missing person report that she filed was literally sitting in the bottom of a drawer, like pretty much since the day that she, um, that she filed it. Um, and so, and like, I'm not even exaggerating about that. Like it was, that's literally where it was put. That's where it stayed for like, I think seven or eight years. Yeah. That's not okay. Yeah. Well, yeah. So, so there's probably a little bit of that, right. Of like, you know, like maybe the full department doesn't really know what the heck's going on because, you know, all these different reports were filed with all these different investigators and all these different officers, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So that's probably playing into it to a hundred percent, you know, a little bit of this indifference toward this community, 1000%. But there's also too, you know, I have to, again, going back to what we're talking about before, you know, to give them a whole bunch of credit here, like this is complicated, right? Like this is not, you know, like this is not, you know, a, you know, somebody who is, you know, um, you know, constantly around around, you know, different places, constantly checking in to their job, to their, you know, after school activity, to whatever it may be. This is not this type of situation. This is very much so, you know, you know, people not getting reported missing for a year or, you know, plus that complicates things, right? Like that, you know, how do you even go, you know, retroactively go back and, and, you know, put together, you know, a timeline of, of when this person went missing, you know, or, you know, even trace down leads a year, two years later, they're in a really rough spot is the point. Yeah. I mean, I can't tell you who I saw, if I saw someone a year ago, unless like, it was a really big Mm -hmm. event and I know for a fact they were there, but otherwise, a cop came and asked me, did you and so, you know, last year? Maybe you know when? No, you know yeah. we have the right the aspect of social media and our phones that we can go back and we can look at mm-hmm. what they don't have. So they are a big disadvantage. Yeah. And like, again, so again, just to reemphasize this here, right? Because we are talking about a community that would, you know, you know, they would go off to to whoever, to wherever for, you know, an extended period of time. And that was just normal to the people that they were known to be around for a long time. And so it was, you know, it, you know, if you go, even if you went back a year or two later and said, hey, when was the last time you saw Kara? When was the last time you saw Andrea? Um, you know what? Actually, that's a really good point. I haven't seen them for a while. That that's how I'm imagining this whole situation yeah. played out. You know, if they, if they even talk to them, right? Because I'm I'm also imagining this community is not very trusting of the police right. for you know for their own reason. So absolutely. So, police end up launching an official investigation into the missing woman of Vancouver in September 1998. But by the time police had any idea of what was going on, that number grew by a long shot. Hello, Crime Over Wine listeners. I am Rachel. And I'm Heather. We are the hosts of Like Mother, Like Murder. We bring you the good, the badass, and the crime. Each week, we bring you stories from missing and murdered to survivors and women who empower you. And of course, some mom talk sprinkled in. Check us out wherever you get your podcasts at Like Mother, Like Murder. And give us a follow on social media so that we can say hi. Okay, love you, bye. Okay, love you, bye. 
the investigation into the missing woman was a really difficult one, as I'm sure you all can imagine, like we've been talking about this whole episode. Women were reported missing all across the city, but the vast majority of them were known to have frequented Vancouver's downtown east side. Almost every single one of them were known sex workers who almost exclusively hung out with other known sex workers. So, Trying to get information on these women proved to be almost impossible. Asking these women about their friends and their pimps generated almost no leads from a community who was really distrusting of the police and really skeptical to give them any information out of fear of facing unrelated criminal charges themselves. But even with this incredibly complicated investigation, police in Vancouver were showing their hands pretty visibly as to how seriously they were taking these investigations. Even then, there were only two officers assigned to what was, in 1997, more than two dozen confirmed or suspected missing persons cases involving sex workers in Vancouver. It was an obvious tell of just how unseriously they were taking what was, in all likelihood, a pattern of crimes against the city sex workers at best and a deranged serial killer on the loose at worst. Oh, yeah, I wonder if they even... if it- occurred to them at the time that that was a serial killer or if they were dead set that these women were just, you know, whatever they had thought, gone on long vacations or had moved away or Uh whatever, because it would have, I would feel like even if I know that they're targeting sex workers and there are still people, but you have to think, well, if it is a serial killer, will they escalate? Will they go after someone who's not a sex worker since that obviously wasn't a big concern to the police, but it's a crazy thought. It is, yeah, and I I mean, I have to imagine just based on, like, what I know about police in terms of, like, you know, like, it's a it's a political organization mm-hmm. just in the fact of, you know, they were they report to the mayor, right? Um, and so, like, I have to imagine that, like, if a serial killer was even, like, if a serial killer was obvious, like, they would, you know, take this, it, it would change absolutely everything, right? Um, But, like, and we're going to get to, like, you know, how, just how much they, like, tampered that down in a second to, like, that, even that thought, um, you know, but it's, I don't know, I, like, I think that there's, like, there's, like, a play, there's, like, a very, like, thin line that they're walking here, right? right? Because you, you, you know, you obviously, you know, don't want to, like, lean too far into serial killer because, like, oh my god, like, there's a serial killer on loose of Vancouver, like, everyone scatter. Right. But, like, also, too, like, if, if you, you come out and catch the serial killer, then you look like the good guys, you know? So, it's, it's a very th- thin line, like that they're towing here, right? You know, for there's a lot of different things that they have to consider. But look, I say all of that with the benefit of hindsight, right? We will never know what it was truly like living through this time in Vancouver and investigating these crimes truly in the dark. So it's easy for me to criticize 30 years later while I'm literally like sipping some wine in my closet. But I've said it on this podcast before, and I'll say it again. There is absolutely 100% this assumption or hope or desire that nothing bad ever happens here. Like, nothing like that can ever happen here. Those kinds of things happen, you know, anywhere else, not in our city. But I am here to tell you that the bad things happen everywhere. In fact, in my experience, those places where you're thinking the bad things never happen, they are probably more likely to happen there, and they are far more likely to be swept under the rug there, too. Yeah, that makes me think of pretty much every Dateline episode ever, where they're like, "Right, that was this was the type of town where they didn't even lock their doors. They thought nothing bad yeah, would ever happen here. Yeah, sleepy town. And I'm like, right. 
weird that every town that thinks that is the one that seems to have mm-hmm. this problem. Feel like maybe right. there's a correlation here. I think there's like this mentality of like, nope, those things don't happen in our city. Yeah. Those things happen anywhere else. And we don't want to believe it. Even when you when you lay the evidence out, you know, as squarely as you possibly can. I agree. I think I think you're spot on. I think we hear the media talk about these things for these bigger towns because they've got these bigger populations, but right they're not talking about the sleepy towns because that's mm-hmm. not as interesting to yeah the vast majority so it seems like manhattan mm-hmm. or los angeles or chicago has this huge crime rate because they're talking about them all the time but in reality right. it's all over the place that that's just where they're picking to yeah. choose to talk about them and but i also think there's something to be said to you about like about like the people like the people in these small towns like the people running these small towns the mayors the mm-hmm. you know people in city council the police chiefs who don't want you to know that this is where the small things happen or don't want to believe it themselves either yes you know because it makes you know it puts too much of a of a target on your small sleepy town if suddenly everyone thinks that some that people can come into this town and do something and and are people who are capable of of doing these kinds of things can come into your town and do these kinds of things um and so i think there is absolutely an interest in you know portraying this nope it doesn't happen here. We have a, we have a safe town. Everything's okay. Those things happen anywhere else. Yeah. I think also with the small town mentality of like, everybody knows everybody. You don't want to mm-hmm. think mm. that, you know, this person that you grew up with or that your mom taught in school or that mowed your grandma's lawn right. or whatever, yeah. that you have been this close or you've been in contact in some way to a person who could do things like that. So I think yeah. it's some of yeah. that as well. Some very yeah. heavy denial. Yeah. And I th- and it, with that uh, going along, the, we're going on like a huge tangent here, but like <laughs> let's just like keep going for it. But like, you know, I think the, you know, like with that being said too, I think there's something about, you know, if something bad does happen in this town where everyone knows everybody, because I grew up in one of those towns, right? Like where mm-hmm. everyone knew everybody. And so like, I, I think that there's, you know, if something bad does happen in one of those towns, the immediate instinct is, oh, somebody who knows that person must have done it. And so therefore we're okay, right? Because, right. because I would know if, you know, if, you know, Joe Smith down the road is going to hurt somebody is going to hurt me. Like I would know that, right? Because I yeah. know Joe Smith. Um, but like, but, and, 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 you know, and you never even imagine that this idea of like, again, like a stranger coming out of coming from outside of the town, coming into the town and doing these horrible things. And, you know, and the same thing is, can even be said for, for these like small little pocket neighborhoods. Neighborhoods, right? Like, right. like you know, for the, for what we're talking about here, um, of you know, Vancouver's downtown east side, you know, that's you know, even if it's even though it's in a bigger city, it's still like a smaller community, a smaller neighborhood where everyone still kind of knows everybody because you're still kind of you know intercommunicating. You know, even though if, if even if it's a little bit in like you know, um, in a way that we're you know not really used to in terms right. of that, like small town kind of complex, it's still the same idea, right? Yeah, I absolutely agree. I think that you're spot on there. Yeah. Well, there you go. Thanks for that. <laughs> Need to hear that. <laughs> but there was an even more alarming trend underneath all of that, too. About a third of the cases that police said that they were investigating involved missing indigenous women. Meanwhile, in the province, indigenous women make up about 3% of the population. And so this created some concern among the public, too, specifically among people in this community, as to why or how the women's disappearances went unnoticed. After all, the main block that these women were known to frequent at the time was literally right outside the police precinct in town. You could see it from the conference room window where they would later convene with family and friends. Okay, so I knew about the indigenous women having done some research. 
I don't think I realized at any point that it was that close to oh, the yeah. precinct. That's wild. Mm-hmm. That's really wild. And I and like very intentionally too, right? Because because I feel like you hear that a lot. Because like, like people who are involved in this in these kinds of lifestyles are smart, right? Like they right. are, you know, in these in these types of situations out of desperation. They're not in, into these types of situations because because they want to be right like the, the because the cert they are in these types of situations out of the circumstances that they were put in in their lives and so they're smart enough to be like to be like if i'm gonna do this if i'm going to put myself in this type of situation like i want to at least at the very least do it right outside the police department i want to be at, le- at the very least do it in a lit block right so that way like if something were to happen to me people would at least notice um and so you know like know what kind of car i got into that kind of thing and so like though frankly those are the type of, like those are street smarts right like that like right. that, that that makes the most amount of sense to me. Yeah, I I agree, and but still, it's blowing my mind that they were that close to mm-hmm. a precinct, and it's just like yeah, it wasn't registering that this was happening. Yeah. And like literally to the point where like the like the um the missing woman inquiry like they were having all these meetings like you could see like it was like like it was right out the window like that's where they were getting getting picked up um you know it was right there and it was you know all these family and friends were coming in like there there it was you know so um you know all the while though investigators were publicly denying what was on Canada's minds and what I know is on all of your minds too they deny that an unknown serial killer had been roaming the streets of Vancouver freely and undetected for more than a decade. In 1999, police begin to jointly meet with family members to discuss the investigation, and they take personal items of their missing loved ones for the purposes of forming a DNA sample. You would think in doing this that they probably had to give the family some relief, right? Like, feels like they're being proactive and they're doing this, but I feel like 1999, when you already got all of these missing cases, it seems so after the fact. I mean, I will say so, like, the late 90s is when, like, DNA, like, really, like, comes onto the scene, right? Like, you know, that's, yeah, that's when, like, the testing, like, that's when CODIS is founded, like, that's when, like, all these, like, like, it, it changes the game. And so, like, this, that feels right like you know for me anyways like the timing wise like i again i'm right there with you like i wish it happened earlier like because the technology was around right it just wasn't as like widely available or like widely known um and so i do think to a to a certain extent like they are like it's it feels a it feels pretty proactive to me to be like okay you know like like sure like you've been here a bunch of times we've kind of blown you off a bunch of times but like now at this point like if we are able to get anywhere we want to make sure that we have that dna sample handy so like i give them that i give i give a point to them in that category because a lot of a whole lot of points they lost out on a whole lot of points throughout this story so i give it to them there yeah i i did i didn't really think about the fact that yes DNA wasn't, you know, just always around. Sometimes I forget about that. That yeah, this fair. was well, it's easy to today. Yeah, yeah, this was the late nineties, which was when DNA really took mm-hmm. off. So, so I, I agree with you. I definitely have to give them a point there because yeah. I had kind of yeah. glossed over that fact since it's so normal now. It's almost weird not to have right. DNA in a case. That yeah. You, it's a whole different thing back then. And isn't it crazy to you? Like, I always think about this, like, we're only, like, this was only, like, 30 years ago. Like, this I was, know. like, like, a, like literally, like, my lifetime ago. You know, like, that's crazy. Yeah. So it's just, yeah. You know, by the time police had gotten anywhere close to an answer as to what was going on on the dark streets of their city, the number of missing women they were investigating had risen to 54. But finally, the investigation to find the reason, the person, or the people behind these women's disappearances was 
finally heating up, but what they may or may not have known was that the person was under their noses the whole time. In the early morning of March 23rd, 1997, a couple is driving down a dark road in British Columbia, Canada, when suddenly they see something absolutely terrifying. It's a woman covered in blood, carrying a knife, running out into the middle of the road, and she starts banging on their car windows, and they are understandably absolutely terrified, but once the shock wears off, they realize that she has a set of handcuffs on one of her wrists, and she's screaming out for help. So they let her into the car and drive her to the nearest hospital, calling for an ambulance along the way. When she gets there, handcuffed still looped around her wrist, she is treated for her wounds, which are rough, and she had been stabbed at least three times and suffered a punctured lung and lost nearly three liters of blood. That's more than half in her whole body. Like, I don't even understand how this woman is even still alive. I don't either. And like, I feel like the people who stopped and picked her up have to be super brave because I would have kept going. I mean, I would have called 911 for sure, but I don't know that I picked her up in my car. Like, they're very brave. Yeah, um, brave is one word for it. I don't really know if that's what... I would, you know, I, you know, I have a couple different words to come to mind, but like, you know, glad they did it. You know, everything worked out, but like, I don't know if that's where my brain would go. Well, I think in hindsight, I think they're brave. Sure. Yeah. They might have been in the car and they were like, yeah, let's pick her up and be like, you are insane. Right. 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 But in hindsight, it seems very brave because obviously they did a good thing. Right. We know what happened. What exactly happened to her? Like, how did she end up like this? Well, the woman's name is Wendy Lynn Eistetter, a 30-year-old mother of two. Her children, though, lived with their father in North Vancouver, but she lived in Vancouver's downtown east side, where she supported a severe and expensive drug addiction by robbing stores and turning to sex work. In the late night of March 22nd, she says she was picked up by a man in a red truck who was offering her $100 for her services, which was double the going rate in the area. Normally, Wendy is pretty smart. She likes to stay around the neighborhood, an area that she knows and can navigate if she gets into any trouble. But this guy is offering big bucks, right? And plus, his home isn't too far away, so she decides that she'll go with him. But when she gets to his house, which is on this farm set back in the woods, she is absolutely disgusted. It's messy, it smells, it is just gross, but the guy pays her and they end up having sex. Afterwards, though, Wendy is starting to get ready to go and she can feel this guy just getting too close for comfort. And then in an instant, he grabs her hand and puts a handcuff around her wrist and she starts to fight back. She's kicking, screaming, punching, and he's returning blows too. Somehow, she makes her way into the kitchen and is able to grab a knife. They both struggle a bit more, and they each end up stabbing each other, but Wendy is able to escape when the guy is doubled over in pain from stab wounds that she just inflicted on him. Once out of the house, she beelines for the nearest home and starts pounding on the door, but with no answer. That's when she notices headlights coming down the road and darts for the couple in the car, who brings her to safety. I cannot even imagine, like, this girl is a fighter and a survivor. Yeah. Because that is just an insane thing to go through. And then to have to run, I guess you have adrenaline that's right. helping you. Because yeah, you have to. Of, 
a physical trauma to go to, and then you're running down the road trying to get away. Yeah. Well, and like keep in mind, like three liters of blood, like these, like these wounds are like nothing, like you know, to shake a stick at by any means, right? Yeah. And so she, like, it has to be pure adrenaline, which probably is why she lost so much blood, right? If she's running around and you know her heart right. rate's going and stuff. So yeah, I mean, just just craziness, right? And also too, like really, like like, and we talked about this previously in the episode, right? But like these, you know, this community, right, has to have all sorts of street smarts in terms of, you know, knowing how to defend yourself, in terms of, you know, knowing when, you know, when you when your instincts are are kind of going off too. Um and also, you know, again, you know, you know, knowing knowing what you feel comfortable with. Um and, you know, this is you know, obviously a time that she kind of ignored that that gut instinct of maybe I shouldn't be doing this. And you know, you know, this is, you know, not typically what I end up doing. But again, like this community this community is a group of people um that, you know, knows, you know, knows that they have to to, you know, play everything safe, like knows that they have to, right. you know, you, you know, that they, you, you know, are, are still very smart about their activities, even though they're doing, you know, a very dangerous thing, right? Right. Yeah. And I mean, that makes sense why she had those certain guidelines. She likes to right. stay, you know, near the neighborhood and things like that. Yeah. And she's also probably hearing about her friends or, you know, other people who, you know, are going missing at this point, right? I mean, we know what's going on in this community. So, um, you know, when nurses, though, at the hospital hear this story, something strikes them. It sounds really familiar to someone else who checked into the hospital that night for stab wounds. That's right. The man who Wendy says attacked her that night is in the hospital too. He tells nurses that he picked up a hitchhiker who attacked him and fled. But at this point, the hospital gets police involved who are not buying this man's story. They collect both Wendy and this guy's clothes for examination. And in his pocket, they find the thing that pieces the two together, a handcuff key that they find matches the handcuffs that are still dangling from Wendy's wrist. Oh, talk about getting caught red-handed or red-handcuffed <laughs> uh, in this case, I guess. But that is crazy. And I wonder... Well, it says that they weren't really buying a story, but I wonder how differently it would have gone if they had not mm. found this one key. Sure. Yeah. Well, and like, and, and you know, because we talk about this all the time, right? Where where it gets to that point where it's like we're screaming at the top of our lungs, "Oh my God, hello, hello, hello!" Like there's something wrong here, and you know, they just kind of say, mm, "You know, there's, you know, I'm sure it's fine, right?" Like there's always that kind of, you know, something in the back of your head that you know you want to believe that this is just a normal occurrence, right? That like there's nothing nefarious going on here. So good, you know. So so you know, not even just like you know, good thing they found the key good thing they listened to their instinct and said this doesn't feel like like this doesn't feel right otherwise who knows where we'd be today right absolutely you know i 100 percent agree yeah well this guy is charged with attempted murder but is released on two thousand dollars bail never spending a single night in jail and to add to the rough luck of this case even more the canadian crown ends up dropping the charges against him after prosecutors decide that wendy is not reliable enough of a witness because of her severe drug addiction this makes me want to scream Mm -hmm. Because, okay, sure, she has a severe drug addiction. I'm not, you know, going to fight that. Mm-hmm. They found the key right. in his pocket. Yeah. Like, she doesn't have to be that reliable. You've got, mm-hmm. like, 
concrete evidence. Right. Well, and like her drug addiction has nothing to do with this attack at all. Like we're like no. at all, right? Like zero percent. Like if she was totally like clean, sober, like this still could have happened to her in the exact same way, right? I mean, yes. so it just doesn't it doesn't make any sense. And it's like and also too like feels very victim blaming on top of all that too, because like 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 drug addicts can be victims too, like victims of assault too. So it's like, just because like she, you know, made a lot of bad choices in her life means that she can get attacked. And you're just like, Mm, sorry like which like and, and also to like to be clear like you know when when, the, when this thing like like totally like playing devil's advocate for them too like when this thing goes to trial or would have went to trial like the like optics of you know you have this woman up here who just probably can't really keep her story straight and probably at this point they kind of piece together that, that they probably are gonna have that problem like that that's a right. that's jeopardizing the case and so like i can see that and so i can i can you know imagine a world where they're just like well we can't you know you know um you know race all these like state or country you know crown resources on a case that we know we're not going to win so which it's unfortunate but i mean i, I don't know i i guess i, I kind of see where they're coming from but it just really sucks it does and part of me i don't know much about like canadian law and mm-hmm. their justice system Cause I feel like in America had this happened that they might would have just like tried to plea him down to a lesser crime. Yeah. Got true. And true. I don't know if that's a Canadian thing, if they would have done that, if it's just kind of like all or nothing. Right. And if that case, you know, if I feel like it was the same thing in America, all or nothing, there probably would be a lot of cases that were just nothing. They yeah. would have been thrown out because they didn't feel strongly enough that they could convict. Yeah. No, you're probably right about that. That's a really good point. Thanks for, thanks for bringing that up. Um, Well, you know, that's how things stayed for a very long time there, until seven years later, when things start to piece together even more. We're going back to Lori Ann Ellis. She is one of the loved ones who is pushing for police to investigate these cases as thoroughly as possible. But it's around this time that she discovers that her sister-in-law, Kara's missing person report, hadn't left a drawer since she had filed it back in 1998. But now, things have kicked into gear, not just in Kara's case, not just in Andrea's case, but in the case of all of the missing women in Vancouver. Because they have their guy, and it just so happens to be the same man who attacked Wendy Lynn Eisetter in March of 1997. Seven years later, police decide to test the clothes and the rubber boots that this guy was wearing the night he was arrested for attacking Wendy, and they find that Wendy's DNA was on the clothes, and so were the DNA of two other women, Andrea Borhaven and Kara Ellis. Okay, I know we've kind of previously in this episode talked a little bit like devil's advocate for the police. Mm Mm-hmm. Oh my god, leaving it in a drawer. Yeah. That's that just like breaks my heart. Like, yeah. Not cool at all. I mean, yeah. And, and like, I don't know. Like this whole story, like again, with like the whole like at this point we're at the the you know, in the timeline of like this whole like the um the missing woman inquiry in Vancouver. Um, right. you know, they are very much so like taking a real good hard look at themselves at this point. So like I give them credit there. Um, but yes. you know, it just feels like there are so many things that went through the cracks here. It's to the point of like if you had, you know, you had these 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 clothes in your position possession back in March 1997 if you just tested it then you know we could we 
be could have avoided seven years of just horrible, disgusting, you know, evil things that have happened in this in 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 Vancouver. Um, and you know, if if you just like like you know took Kara's case file, took Kara's missing persons report, and didn't stick it in a drawer and actually did something with it, you know, or at the very least put it on your desk because that way it wasn't a drawer, it stuck in a drawer somewhere. Who knows where we'd be now? And so I don't know. Again, like I like I give them the credit, you know, to to you know very vulnerably go back and you know look at look at themselves, you know, very you know realistically and very thoroughly. And 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 but I just it just feels like it's like too little, too late, pal. Like there are all these like really bad situations that have already happened. Yeah, and I'm sure like we all get to we get to see it all in hindsight, and sure. I have to keep that in mind sometimes that we are, but. Even so, that seems like such a rookie thing to do to just oh, stick yeah. it and leave it. A lot of the other things I can, you know, I can at least put myself in their shoes in that moment. Right. But that just seems like a very careless type of thing to yeah. do. Yeah. That's the, I think the hardest part for me is it's not like, oh, they were young, they were there. Or new, or it just seems careless. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, callous a little bit. I mean, not even just careless. Like, I mean, it just feels like, like what, like, like I just, I just don't understand. Like, if I was a cop, like, I, and someone came to me and said my loved one was missing, like, I can't imagine just being like, you know, just being like, oh, okay, and like taking their missing persons report and sticking it in a, in a drawer somewhere. Like, what, like, yeah. why are you a cop if if this kind of things? you know, aren't, you know, getting you going. Like, this is, you know, like, I could see, like, I could see, like, if you were a cop and, like, you know, stuck on, you know, like, parking ticket duty and, like, you just, like, didn't give a crap, like, whatever, cool. But, like, you're talking about people's lives here. And if you don't get passionate about that, like, don't do it, you know? Right. So. I I agree 100%. Yeah. Well, um, if you all haven't figured it out by now, this guy is indeed Robert William Picton, Canada's notorious pig butcher serial killer who terrorized British Columbia for decades. And to get into everything about Robert, we could probably do a second episode. In fact, we definitely could do a second episode. And so, you know what? I think that's exactly what we're going to do. You can hear every painstaking detail about the strange life and eventual conviction of Robert William Picton on part two of this episode, which will air on Murder and Mimosas this coming Saturday, September 2nd. Yes, we are so excited. We have really enjoyed being able to look into Robert, and so we have so much information about him. Yeah. He's extremely fascinating to learn about, so we're ready to share that with you all, just to see what kind of person that he was growing up and then eventually became yeah no i can't wait either i'm so excited to see what you have what you dug up danica but in order for everyone on crime over wine who listens to crime over wine to learn um you know more about you know listen part two of this episode we need to know like where they can find it so tell everyone where they can find you your work and your podcast online absolutely so our podcast is on all the major platforms that you would listen to your podcast Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, all of them. Uh, It's just Murder and Mimosas. And as far as our online, we are most active on our Facebook page, which is Murder and Mimosas Podcast. Uh, But we're also on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok at murder.mimosas. You can find us 
on all of those socials. Awesome. We'll go give them a follow. And thank you again so much for coming on. And thank you all so much for listening. We are going to put all of our sources on our website so you can read everything for yourself and probably come up with a few theories too. And if you are just loving this podcast and are just wondering how you can tell everyone and anyone about it, the best way to help others discover this podcast is by leaving us a five-star rating and a review wherever you are listening right now. So make sure you follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And if you're wondering what we have in store for you next week, here's a quick sneak peek. Hello, everybody. It's Liam. And I'm Heather Hawley. Next week, I'm joining the Crime Vineyard, where Liam and I are going to talk about a 30-year-old mystery come to light. What links will police go to to find the name of the woman in the barrel? It meets the true definition of a head-scratcher. But you'll have to wait until next Wine Wednesday for the next episode of Crime Over Wine. Proud member of the Podnougan Network.